Hey, I hope you're as excited about Easter at the TED as I am. Last week, we looked at ways that we could each be involved in inviting 50 people to be with us and be our guests for that day. I want to give you just a few ideas and some ways that we could use technology maybe to invite a lot of people quickly. Maybe it won't take but just a minute or two. Let's see what we can do. I'm going to go to the church's Facebook page. Check out the invitation that's available there. Here's Easter at the TED. I'm going to share that on my page. Uh, I'm going to share it actually in message first. And I'm going to identify some friends that I'm going to invite. Also going to take a taking a photo that I downloaded from the church's webpage. I'm going to send that by text message to some friends. I'm going to send this to some friends of mine that are far away and invite them to join us on Facebook Live. And just like that, we've successfully invited more than 10 people in less than a couple of minutes. Uh, I hope that you'll take advantage of the opportunity to invite a lot of your friends using social media, use your text message, use the technology that God's given you. Let me remind you that you can also invite people to join us on Facebook Live or live streaming on our website uh, at firstnorfolk.org slash live. We're going to have a great day, April 16th. Use what God has given you this week. Be a part of inviting your 50 to join us for Easter at the TED. Well, it's going to be an exciting time as we get together at Easter at 10 a.m. at the TED. It's going to be spectacular, and there are going to be a host of people who gather with us. I just want us to make sure that we understand why we're inviting people to come and be with us at Easter. Uh, first and foremost, we gather together to worship the living God and, and our resurrected Savior. So we're inviting people who perhaps don't have a church home or in between church homes. They're looking for a, a place to worship the Lord. You invite them, and uh, that's going to be a wonderful time uh, to, uh, to exalt Christ and to worship Him. Uh, and then uh, there are going to be people who gather with us, and there are people that you work with or go to school with, people all around you who are living far from God. And uh, they are living far from God. And the Bible tells us that those who are far from God are living without hope because they're living without God. And it's our job as, as followers of Jesus in our world, wherever we're planted, wherever we are, uh, to be ambassadors of Jesus to them. And so we invite people to come to the TED on Easter, number one, because they're more inclined to say yes to an Easter invitation, but also because we want those who are far from God to find life through Jesus Christ. And so uh, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people are going to be gathered with us who are far from God. They will hear the good news of Jesus Christ and perhaps for the very first time uh, find life uh, that they did not know through faith in Jesus. So you be sure and prepare. Uh, go invite your 10. You had uh, 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 10 names last week, perhaps, or cards at the end of the pews. You make a list of those 10 names that you still have to invite and put that on your bathroom mirror, or on your refrigerator, or uh, on your uh, sun visor in your car to remind you to invite people uh, those 10 people, those 10 people around you, uh, use social media, uh, break out your phone and text and say, hey, listen, uh, we're having Easter at the TED, wanted you to be a part, I'll meet you at the, at the entranceway and, and you can sit with me, uh, but let's invite people uh, because 
It's that invitation that could make the eternal difference in somebody's life, all right? Uh, so right now, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 8. And uh, while you're turning there, I don't know how many of y'all went to see Beauty and the Beast. Anybody go see Beauty and the Beast this week? Beauty and the Beast, Beauty and the Beast, Beauty and the Beast. I did not go see Beauty and the Beast. I probably won't go see Beauty and the Beast, uh, mainly because uh, I saw the original. You know what I'm saying? I saw 1991 was the year my wife and I were married, and uh, that was the year uh, that Beauty and the Beast came out uh, in its uh, cinematic and cartoonish fashion. And uh, I did not go see Beauty and the Beast in the theaters when it came out then. Uh, but uh, over the years, after uh, we started having children, which was about very quickly after we got married, we started having children. And so uh, when uh, Emily Catherine, my oldest, uh, was old enough to figure out that there was such a thing as uh, Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and Cinderella and Snow White and all that, we would go down to the store and we would buy a VHS tape. We still have those VHS tapes. Some of y'all are like, what in the world is a VHS tape? It's kind of like, like, like a cassette tape. It's kind of like an eight-track tape. It's like, a, it's, it's like a downloaded video on a big disc. Uh, it's a VHS. Use a VCR to, to watch it. VCR. Maybe if you dig in the attic, some of y'all will find a VCR. But anyway, so we watched uh, Beauty and the Beast. And I won't, uh, most of you know the story of Beauty and the Beast. It's about a beauty and it's about a beast. Um, won't, uh, won't, uh, have any spoiler alerts, but I will tell, if I could start at the very beginning, you know, the, 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 the storyline, if you, if you uh, know the story, you know that uh, the beast was a prince before he was a beast. Uh, the beast was a prince and, and he was, uh, uh, you know, he was a, a prince who lived in this land and, and being a prince, he had lots of money, he had lots of possessions, he lived in a grand castle, and it led him to a sense of entitlement. And in that sense of entitlement as a young prince, it also led him to be arrogant, and it led him to be selfish. And it was that selfishness that became the curse that turned him into the beast. And today, I would just say to all of us that selfishness makes a beast out of all of us. And as followers of Jesus, we need to understand that selfishness must never be part of our lives as followers of Jesus. That selfishness runs counter and contrary to who we are as followers of Jesus. Selfishness and, 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 and self-centeredness is exactly opposite. In fact, I would suggest that it was the curse of sin in our lives that gives fruit to selfishness 
But the good news is, as followers of Jesus, the curse of sin has been shattered by Jesus on a cross. And when by faith we trusted him, that curse was erased and the power of that curse was no longer over us. So that not only has sin been obliterated, but selfishness must be destroyed. Now, you might be here today and you might say, well, I just don't buy the idea that selfishness is the same as sinfulness. All right. You're wrong, but okay. Okay. You you don't think selfishness is sinfulness. All right. You don't think that, but can I ask you a couple of questions just to get us thinking and get on the same page? Do you think Jesus was selfish? I mean, at any point in his life, from what we read, the the guy that we follow, the, the one that we emulate was that... Do you read anything in his life that says, boy, he was selfish? There is nothing in Jesus that would display selfishness. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus wasn't selfish. He was sacrificial. Jesus gave his life not for a bunch of people who could do something for him. He gave his life for sinners who deserve nothing but punishment in hell. Jesus wasn't selfish. No part of his life was selfish. So we who claim to be followers of Jesus, how can we say that we're following him and still hold on to selfishness? At the very least, if you don't believe selfishness is sinfulness, you just think it's it's something else. If you're a follower of Jesus, you still shouldn't be selfish. Because as a follower of Jesus, your primary aim in life is what? To be like Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, your goal, my goal, our goal, our whole program, the reason we get together and worship, the reason we study God's word in small groups, the reason we're we're here, the reason we're living is to be more like Jesus. We're in an internship right now for an eternal job description. We're supposed to become more and more and more like Jesus, and you're not going to become more like Jesus if you hold on to selfishness. You're here today, and you've excused and rationalized your selfishness as if it's no big deal. It is a huge deal. And it runs counter and contrary to who you are supposed to be as a follower of Jesus. That being said, that means that we've got to slay the dragon of selfishness if we're going to grow as a follower of Jesus and as the church. Selfishness itself has to be slaughtered. Your selfishness. Now you might say, well, I'm not really selfish. Yeah, I'm I'm not really selfish. Okay. All right. When you get to a place and you're hanging out and you think, well, this doesn't do me very much good. I don't know what's in it for me. They didn't sing one song that I knew. Is that not being selfish? Because you're not focused on... Other people who know that song or even the words of the song that give praise to God, you're just focused on, what? Well, just, I don't know that song. Is that not being selfish? You might say, well, no, it doesn't count. Well, of course it counts. Selfishness is whenever we exalt ourselves and diminish others. That's selfishness. 
And we know that the minute we embrace selfishness, we're giving ourselves an excuse not to be like Jesus. If at any point in your life you have excused your behavior that is contrary to being like Jesus, you've excused it and you've said, well, it's okay for me to, in this situation, not to be like Jesus, you have embraced disobedience to God. You see that? Now, I mean, do you see that? If you don't see that, then let me repeat it. How many of y'all got it? Raise your hand. If you, did anybody not get that? Y'all need for me to repeat that. Anybody need me to repeat that? Okay, I'll repeat it. I want you to hear this. Don't reject it. I want you to listen very closely. Your job as a follower of Jesus is to be more like Jesus. The minute you decide that there is an area or a place or, a, or, or some aspect of your life where you don't have to be more like Jesus, you have embraced disobedience to God. The minute you've embraced disobedience to God, you have embraced idolatry in your own life. The minute you've embraced idolatry in your own life is the minute you've excused aberrant behavior that is so contrary to who God is that the only response you can have legitimately to be faithful to God is confession and repentance before a holy God. And if you're not ready to do that, then you're not ready to grow as a follower of Jesus. You might be ready to get more information. I mean, you want me to give you some Greek words. You want me to give you some parsing. You want me to, you want me to give you some, some, some eschatological end times program so that you feel like you're getting smarter. But getting smarter is not the same thing as growing up as a follower of Jesus. See, growing up as a follower of Jesus means you're growing in obedience to God. So here, I want you all to look this way. If you have rationalized your behavior so that selfishness is okay, then you have rationalized disobedience to God because you've excused a place in your life where you don't have to be like Jesus. The minute you do that is the minute you stunt your growth. You are not growing as a disciple of Christ, nor are you being mature, nor are you attaining maturity. You know, I, 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 there are those who uh, uh, th- there are those in the church who rationalize their perspectives so much so that they can they can dis just dis not disrespect say ugly things about every aspect of the church because it doesn't do what, the church, what they want the church to do. And yet they act like they are spiritually mature. Friends, there is nothing spiritually mature about that. No aspect, not one part of it. And if you excuse it, if you say, well, that's just Bill being Bill or that's just Betty being Betty, if you excuse that, then what you're doing is you're excusing sin just like some people in our culture excuse homosexuality and call it not sin. Do you not see that? If you, can't, if you can't make that correlation, go back to the vice lists 
that Paul gives us in Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and see what he includes in those vice lists. If you think that it's okay to talk disparagingly and slander and gossip in ugly ways about fellow believers or about the bride of Christ itself because they're not doing what you want them to do, you think that's okay, then you're just as bad as those who excuse aberrant sexual immorality and say it's okay. You're doing the same thing. I, I know, and people don't like it when I do stuff like that because they're like, well, no, I don't do that. But, yeah, you do. You say, well, hey, you know, I, Eric, you, I'm conservative. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with being obedient. I'm not measuring you by your political stature. I'm measuring you by what the Bible has to say. How about you? Is that what you're doing? Selfishness is not okay. It's just not. So we got to figure out how to deal with it. And I believe that what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 8 is that generosity is the weapon, one of the weapons God gives us to slay the dragon of selfishness in our lives. And by the way, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe the Apostle Paul, then let me give you somebody you perhaps will believe, Billy Graham. Billy Graham said, we were not made to be conduits which hoard, but we are made to be channels that give. Part of the DNA of who you are as a follower of Christ and who I am as a follower of Christ, you know what that means? I'm supposed to be generous. So Paul was trying to excite this generosity in, in the church at Corinth, and he was going to use the churches in Macedonia to excite that kind of generosity. So let's look at verses 7, 8, and 9 quickly. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, begin verse 7. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, in, in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace of giving also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Can I stop right there? Verse 8, testing the sincerity of your love. He's saying to the church at Corinth, you say you love Jesus, but let's see how much. You say you love Jesus, but let's see by your faithfulness. He says, here's the Macedonian church, and that, we'll, we'll go back and look at that, but here's the Macedonian church, and man, they demonstrate their love for God and others by their generosity. Now, using them as a template on your life and on your church, do you really love? Do you really love God? Is, is, and, and can I just suggest you can sing all the songs and we can sing all the songs we want about loving God, but if we hold on to selfishness, we are not loving God. We're loving ourselves. Okay? So I, 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 I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your loves by the, by the diligence of others. He goes on in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And that is the foundation of who we are as followers of Jesus and as the church. The the foundation of who we are is verse 9, that 
that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor for your sakes, so that through his poverty he might become rich. And so Paul's point here is that we need to embrace generosity because because it is this wondrous picture of God's grace that awakens generosity in us toward others. It is this powerful work of God's rescuing love that brought you into the kingdom and the family of God. Not, not, the, not the fact that you uh, somehow were born in America or, or born a Baptist or, or lived in, in Norfolk, Virginia or in the seven cities of Hampton Roads or, or, or you attended a church for, for uh, all your life. You, you were in the uh, baby role, a cradle role here at First Norfolk. That doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. The only thing that makes us a follower of Jesus is that God in his grace sent Jesus to die in our place upon a cross and be raised from the dead on the third day. And when we by faith trust Jesus, then we are awakened to new life. See, before before God's grace entered our life, we were lost and living without hope. We were stuck in darkness. We were living a dead life. We were stuck in a dead zone. We had no hope. We had no purpose. We had no joy. We were lacking peace. And and that's our life apart from Jesus. But when Jesus, who who was rich and became poor on our behalf, when Jesus took hold of our heart and we saw him, our Savior, hanging on a cross being killed for my sin and I cried out to him for his mercy and grace and he reached down to me and he forgave me my sin and he covered me with his righteousness. In that moment, God's grace took hold of me and made me a brand new person and that is the foundation for why we live. Not your morality, not my morality, not the rules, not the regulations, but it's all about this grace. And listen, if you're more comfortable with the rules than you are the grace, then you need to, one, either evaluate whether or not you're really a follower of Jesus, or you need to slay the dragon of your legalism and your moralism. There's only one thing. Look, only one thing makes you fit for heaven, and that is the grace of God brought to you by the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. Zero else. So it is God's grace through Jesus that makes us who we are. And one of the things that that, that we are is generous. Again, Jesus was sacrificial, not selfish. Are you, stop, everybody look, just simple question. Are you selfish or are you sacrificial? Don't say I'm in between. That's a cheat. And it's not true. If you don't know and you've got a husband or a wife, ask them. Hey, am I selfish or am I sacrificial? If you have a best friend, call them up or nudge them if they're sitting next to you. Am I selfish or am I sacrificial? If you have children, ask them, am I selfish or am I sacrificial? You got a parent, ask them, am I selfish or am I sacrificial? If you have a grandparent, don't ask them. That's not going to help you a bit. Because grandparents see their grandchildren as perfect in every way. That's why I like to hang out with my granddaddy. Look, just everybody stop 
And stop playing games. Stop trying to act like you're all spiritual and religious. Let's get to the root of what's going to help us grow as followers of Jesus and as a church. And the root is we've got to slay selfishness and be sacrificial. That's what the gospel teaches us. That's the DNA that the gospel has put in us. So today, let's, let's, let's ask God by His Spirit to awaken this grace in us so that that grace spurs us on to sacrificial living, to generosity. Again, that's the point that Paul's making. By the way, I, I think it's important for you to understand that God's Word is bigger, better, more powerful, and true. That truer than anything that you and I might think or feel. And so when God's word gives us direction, we have to adjust our life, our feeling, our thinking to what God's word says. That's, that's again, who we are as followers of Jesus and as the church. So as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I want just look at verse 7 right quick. What does verse 7 teach us? Verse 7 teaches us that God's calling us to grow up. Yeah, one of the things that, that if you get nothing else here today, just get this. Generosity is a mark of maturity as a follower of Jesus. Generosity is a mark of maturity as a follower of Jesus. Now, look at verse 7. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, he says, But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you bound, abound in this grace of giving also. He's, he's been saying for six verses how important it is to give. Now in verse 7 he says, Now you, church, you believers in Corinth, you think you're grown up. You've got all these excellencies in you. You're, you're, you've, you've grown up in faith so that you say that you can trust God. And believe him. You, you've grown up in speech so that you can communicate the, the, the truths of God to, to others. You've grown up in, in knowledge so that you can grasp the word of God. You've grown up in, in, uh, in, 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 in all diligence so that you can pursue and do the things of God to advance God's kingdom. And, and you've, you've grown up in love so that you love others the way Jesus has loved you. And he says, you've got all that stuff, but here's what you're fighting against. You're fighting against generosity, and generosity isn't a sideline deal to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is core curriculum. See, what we do, again, everybody look this way. What we do, and lean into this one, what we do is we try to make generosity or giving a sideline deal to being part of the church. We try to make it a sideline. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a member of the church and I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't really have to give because that's not really what I have to do. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I mean nobody's going to know if I don't give. No, no, nobody's going nobody's to know if I... So it's not something I really have to do. I didn't sign anything to make me want to give, right? I, it's, not, I'm not, it's not like, a, it's not like a, a, a social club where I've actually had to sign a contract and enter. You know, I, I don't have to give. And, and so we rationalize and say, well, you know, they didn't send me a bill. Why do I have to pay? Now, I get all that concept. I really do. But that's, that, that's not our motivation. You see... I've kind of made it a big deal that we're not going to motivate based upon sending a bill. But rather, I want to motivate based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who you are as a follower of Jesus. 
and Paul says, you, you have all these excellencies of, of grown-up gifts and that you're using, the spiritual gifts that God's given you, and, and you've grown in the grace of, of faith and grown in the grace of, 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 of speech and of knowledge and all diligence and love. But, but he says, here's what you're neglecting, and make sure you don't neglect it anymore, the, the gift of generosity. The, the gift of giving. Are you selfish or sacrificial? It's time to grow up. And by the way, you're not grown up if you're not generous. As a follower of Jesus, you're not grown up. You've stunted your growth at the very least. Generosity is not optional. It's core curriculum for a follower of Jesus. Now, I struggle with this just like everybody else does. It's not, it's not always been easy. I didn't wake up one day and say, oh, man, I'm going to be generous, right? That's, it's not easy. But, I mean, these kids that hand me these coins every week now, man, they've taught me more than a thousand sermons that I've studied for. These, these little children coming up and say, I just want to give, and they're excited to give, and they, they want me to know that they are giving, and, and, and there's joy, and, and, and there's excitement, and there's, there, there's, there's a thrill in their soul, and, and, and I wonder why it is that we as grown-ups have lost that. And I would just say that maybe the children are more grown up in Christ than we are. God calls us to grow up. The second thing we see in this passage, we embrace generosity because generosity flows out of exponential joy. And, and I, I want to break this passage down just for a second. You go up to chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, okay? And I, I, I won't spend a lot of time here, but I do want us to, to dig in a little bit here. Moreover, brethren, Paul writes in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the, rich, in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they, freely, uh, they, they were freely willing. All right, so, so what's he saying here? Um, so he says that there's a formula by which they live, okay? The formula was this. They were living in severe trials, okay? Their circumstances were stinking. They didn't have good circumstances. They were, uh, they were living in difficult circumstances. So, uh, so Paul writes, he says, in their abounding joy, their exponential joy, was colliding with their exponential poverty. So they had this exponential joy, and it collides with their exponential poverty. And the result is liberality or generosity. Now, that doesn't make sense. I, you, just walk with me here. In your own life, okay, just think about your own journey, your own walk. You have, you have joy, exponential joy. And then you hit exponentially bad circumstances. The result is generosity. I mean, in your own life, and let, let me, I won't talk about you, let me talk about me. 
in my life, when I am joyful and I hit bad circumstances, I'm usually not very joyful. Am I right? All right. If I'm joyful and I hit really, really bad circumstances, I'm usually not more generous. I'm usually more cranky. I'm usually more miserly. Exponential joy. Got plenty of money in the bank account. Exponential poverty. We didn't pay mortgage for the last six months. We, we didn't know. Result? Well, we're just going to stop giving for a while. Exponential joy. I have money in my bank account. Did you see the gas bill this month? Well, we just need to hold steady on our giving. Exponential joy. The stock market crashed. I lost everything. I'm not doing anything generous for anybody else. Okay? That's kind of the norm, isn't it? I mean, the way you manage and navigate your own finances, isn't it? Even as a follower of Jesus, isn't it more inclined to flow according to your circumstances? My circumstances are great, I'm giving great. My circumstances stink, I'm not giving a lot. And isn't that kind of how we work? Now, I'm not making judgments, I'm just telling you my own personal testimony. Am I right or am I right? Okay. There is a better way. Something I've learned, something that Paul was teaching, and something that I hope God awakens in you. Exponential joy. Where does the joy come from? Why do I have this exponential joy? For the church in, in, in Macedonia, the reason they had exponential joy, overflowing joy, swelling the banks of their soul kind of joy, the reason they had that kind of joy was because of their relationship with Jesus. It wasn't because of their circumstances, good or bad. They, their circumstances were stinking, but they had overflowing joy. They were so excited to walk hand in hand with the living God. They knew that they were being nourished and nurtured by the living God, their hope was in the living God. Their life was in the hands of the living God. Everything depended upon their relationship with the living God. It didn't depend on who's in the government. It didn't depend on how their economy was. It didn't depend on what was in the bank account. It didn't depend on whether they had a job or lost a job or were uh, refrained from ever getting a job. They were stuck in joy that was overflowing because of their relationship with Jesus. Now, the reason you and I allow our circumstances to dictate our liberality or non-liberality is because so often our joy is dictated and depends upon our circumstances. Things are good, I'm happy. Things are bad, I'm sad. I get that. But if your joy is dependent upon your circumstances to the degree that you lose your joy when your circumstances change, then my suggestion would be to go back to Christianity 101 that says, my joy is not found 
in what I have or what I do or what others do or don't do for me. My joy is found in the fact that I belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is the King of the universe and the maker and the creator of all things. And he loves me and he is with me and he is near me and he is for me. And I wake up in the morning and I feel the breath of his peace washing over me. And I go to bed at night and I hear his song of love washing over me. And every moment in between, I rest in his embrace and I run into his lap and I sing songs of joy with him as he sings songs of love with me. There is something in me that is supernatural and it's not something that I've made, but it's something that God's grace has made in me. I have joy no matter what because I have God at all times. Help me, somebody help me. We have exponential joy not based upon anything else. Whether it's Monday or not, Mondays are bad for me, by the way. <laughs> Just being honest, Mondays are hard, right? If there is a joy killer in my life, it's called Monday. But regardless, when I am so tied to Jesus that no matter what happens, I've got some joy rising up in me. And if you don't know that kind of joy, if you've never known that kind of joy, can I just introduce you to my Jesus? He's nourishing me. He's nurturing me. He's giving me life. So for the church in Macedonia, they had, they had joy that is bound up in Jesus. So that when their exponential joy hit their exponential poverty, they said, you know what? This is good. This is good because this gives God an opportunity to shine. See, their exponential joy depends upon the fact that God is with them and near them and for them and providing and nurturing and nourishing them and, and protecting them. And so when they see bad circumstances and they see deep poverty, they're looking at that and say, boy, this is going to be the battleground between selfishness and sacrificial living. This is going to be the battleground between me being self-centered and me being generous. And I want generosity to win because if I'm going to trust God and I'm going to believe on him and I'm going to live for him then I believe with all my heart that as I give according to his purpose and according to his plan he will show me how powerful he is he will shine brightly how gracious he is he will show me how how glorious and majestic he is I'm going to be liberal I'm going to I'm going to be generous that's what the psalmist was saying in Psalm 41, verse 1. Psalm 41, verse 1, psalmist said, um, Blessed is the man who gives to the poor or to the needy. For God will never let trouble be at home in his life. I, when we are generous to the needy, trusting God for our provision, then he will provide for us. 23rd Psalm, help me. The Lord is my, I shall not, what? 
Even in the valley of the darkest valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear. Even when enemies are riding down to assault me, I'm okay. Why? Because the Lord is my. I shall not. Here I am. Lord, here I am. I'm trusting you. My joy is in you. My joy is in you. The joy of the Lord is our. Listen, the reason we live impotent lives is because we are not joyful in the Lord. We're not joyful in the Lord because we're depending on ourselves or our group of friends or our circumstances to give us strength. Generosity flows from exponential joy, and that exponential joy is tied to our relationship with God. So when it comes to generosity, and let me just share this, when it comes to generosity, I'm not saying you've got to give this or give that. I'm not saying you've got to meet a certain qualification or a certain standard. That's not what I'm saying at all. When it comes to generosity, when it comes to giving, here's what I'm saying. Don't rob yourself of joy. Oh, God, how do you want me to give? Oh, God, how far do you want me to push the envelope? Oh, God, I can't wait to see what you're going to do next as I'm generous. Generosity flows from exponential joy. The last thing, and this is the last thing, because I said it's the last thing, is generosity pursues opportunity. Generosity pursues opportunity. Generosity doesn't uh, wait for something to happen and then here we go. Generosity isn't measuring the calendars and the dates and the times. Generosity, as Paul describes it here, is zealous to pursue the opportunity that God has given. Just look at verse 4 and then we'll end. Verse 4, it says that the church, the believers in Macedonia were imploring us with much urgency that we should receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. Paul understood that they didn't have a lot, so he was saying, y'all need to hold on to this money. And they're saying, have you lost your mind? Why are you trying to rob us of some joy that God has offered us by being generous and and giving with this simple formula in mind. We want to pursue this opportunity to, to give, to bless others, to give, to advance the kingdom. Can I ask you, are you pursuing opportunities to be generous? I'm so excited to hear stories of different members of our church, some very close to home, some further away, but uh, individuals who have heard the call to be generous and to be like Jesus. And, and, and so they've, they've gone to the dollar general store. They've gone down the street to homeless people carrying signs. They've gone to the, to the McDonald's or they've gone to the Walmart or, they, or, or to Target or someplace like that. They've gone to the grocery store and they've, they've just gone around. They didn't uh, carry a sign saying, I'm from First Baptist Norfolk or, or I'm a Christian or anything like that. They just went around helping people just to bless them. And they're looking for opportunities. This week, I pray that God shows you opportunities, that you would look for them, to be generous. We've got to slay the dragon of selfishness if we're going to grow. I pray that we look for opportunities. And on April 2nd, I'm going to give you an opportunity. So as a church, here's the opportunity that's going to be presented to you and to me.
Um, on April 2nd, we're going to take our offering, and there are uh, three aspects of this offering that we're going to do something with. The first part, uh, $83,000 and some change every week. We need $83,000 and some change uh, to uh, make disciples, to uh, expand ministry capacity, to help hurting people, to, to gather for worship, to invest in the next generation, and to live the mission globally. And that's, that's our weekly requirement, 83000 plus some change. So on April 2nd, we're going to take that $83,000 and we're going to set that aside for budget. Then anything above $83,000, half of it we're going to give to help the people who are still hurting financially from Hurricane Matthew in our church. There's still people in our church who are hurting financially from Hurricane Matthew. We want to help them. So half the money that we take above uh, that, we're going to help as many people as we can. If we run out of people, then we'll put it in our benevolence fund or something like that. But, uh, so $83,000 off the top goes to our budget. 50% above the 83000 is going to go to help the hurting people, especially with Hurricane Matthew. And then the second 50%, we're going to invest in a church plant in Norfolk called The Mission. The Mission Church is uh, not launched yet. It's uh, just, uh, just in its beginning stage. They've been meeting regularly, and, and, and yet they, they haven't launched as a congregation or family of faith. Next Sunday, you're going to get to meet uh, the church planter, Charles Shannon, and his wife. They're going to come. Uh, this is a church plant in the urban setting of Norfolk, uh, and uh, we're excited to partner with them. Part of our 10-year vision that we, um, that we shared last year was, uh, was uh, in 10 years, we're going to, we're going to start... 10 multi-site locations, that's First Norfolk and different places in the seven cities of Hampton Roads, but we're also going to plant 20 churches, and this is going to be our first partnership since we launched that vision. Um, and so uh, next, on, on April the 2nd, 83000 some change going to go to our budget offering. 50% of that over budget is going to help the hurting uh, from Hurricane Matthew, and any excess we'll, we'll uh, put it in our benevolence fund. And then the second 50% is going to go and invest in uh, launching this church plant called The Mission. And I am excited about what God has in store. I'm going to ask you to begin praying how you can be generous. Uh, my wife and I have been talking about this for some time because we had a head start on thinking about it. Go figure. Um, but we've been praying, and, and I'm, I, I, I will tell you that um, what God has laid upon our hearts to do is the most generous gift we've ever considered giving to the church and through the church. Uh, it is extravagant by every measure I know. I don't say that to boast. I'm just telling you, I'm doing it because I believe that it's time for God to show up and shine. And I want to be a part of that in my life, in my family's life, and in our church. I'm going to ask you to begin praying. How does God want you to be generous, uh, especially on April the 2nd. Everybody bow your heads, close your eyes. So thankful for uh, the opportunity and the privilege of worshiping together. And, and uh, somehow we, we fail to consider how important it is for us to pray together. Um, I know that it's challenging sometimes when, when we're so focused on other things and and, uh, and, and maybe even a little bit insecure about, about uh, being around people we don't know and praying with them or for them. But this morning I pray and I'm asking you to, 
to, at the very least, join spiritually with those around you. There are people who are struggling financially right now. They really are. And, and you're sitting next to some of them. And they're struggling. And, and, and they're trying to figure out, how can I be generous when my bank account is always in the negative? You know what I'm saying? I pray that God would give you wisdom and insight into how to honor him and be generous. And that, that can take different forms and look like different things. But, but remember, generosity is built not upon some measure I lay out for you. Generosity is measured by your relationship with God. So today I'm praying, and I encourage you to pray for those around you who are struggling financially. And, and maybe God has put you next to a person that he's calling you to be generous toward. And that amazing how God puts family together in particular places and particular ways just so we can bless each other. And maybe that's what God has done today for you. Others of you, God has convicted you of selfishness and, 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 and he's calling you to slay the dragon. And maybe you need to come to this altar and pray. And maybe, maybe you're here today and, <clears throat> and uh, uh, you, you're inspired uh, to greater generosity, you just don't know how to get there. So maybe you need to come to this altar and ask God for direction and wisdom. Maybe you just need to come to the altar and thank God for, for how he's provided for you in days past and how he will continue again. Maybe you need to ask him to spark joy in your heart through the grace that he's given you. Some of you are here today and maybe you don't know God. Uh, you've heard about him, you've maybe even been to church and listened about him, but you don't have a relationship with him that produces life-affirming, life-changing joy, and you would like to know God. And we're going to have ministers here at the front who would be willing and ready to answer any questions and help you on that journey. So God, in this moment, I pray that we would worship you and sing praises to your name. May we respond obediently to your call, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's